Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon. This is Dean Finale with Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to have as our guest, Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum, MD, who's really one of the foremost experts in chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about long COVID, some of the symptoms that uh, are related or at least seem to mimic uh, the chronic fatigue syndrome with Dr. Teitelbaum. Uh, before we bring on Dr. Teitelbaum, though, let's see what's going on in the life science world. Unfortunately, really um, surprising bad news when it comes to the virus strain. We just got done almost dealing with the Delta variant. Now we hear there's a new variant that has uh, much more mutations on the uh, spike protein than the Delta variant. So it's uh, currently designated a variant of concern. Uh, We'll see how that, or a variant of interest, excuse me, we'll see how that plays out. But that variant uh, showed itself in South Africa and certain African nations. Uh, one case was detected in Europe, uh, particularly in Belgium, and uh, we're not aware of any in the U.S. yet, but the, uh, I think to the extent this is as contagious or at least somewhat as contagious as Delta, it probably will at some point arrive here. So what's that mean for us? Uh, we've Heard a lot about vaccines, about boosters. It looks like boosters are going to be available, uh, or excuse me, necessary for everyone. Uh, But are we redefining what what it means to be fully vaccinated? If you got your two doses, now are you not considered fully vaccinated until you get your booster? Uh, We'll have to see how that plays out with the CDC and FDA. There's also a lot of interest in What's been called long COVID, the, you know, we tend to, a lot of people out there tend to think of COVID as uh, a really bad flu-like cold, which uh, I think is pretty accurate to describe it that way. But we're also, there's a lot we don't know. And one of the things that seems to be a recurring issue is these long-term effects that COVID has. Some people even exhibiting about six months after being infected with the virus, these Fatigue-like symptoms, loss of memory, loss of taste, we're all familiar with those type of uh, symptoms that have come out. But some of the symptoms are a lot more serious than just uh, a loss of taste. You know, some of these symptoms, chronic fatigue, long uh, COVID that it displays is really something that I think hasn't been told to people as well as it should be. Uh, so I'm very g- glad to bring on our guest today, Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. Dr. Teitelbaum, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Christine, it's great to be with you and all your listeners. And for those of you out there who have long COVID, who have persistent symptoms, we're going to teach you how to make them go away today. That's great. So maybe you could tell us, start off uh, with describing what is chronic fatigue syndrome and, you know, how is that in any way related to these long-term effects uh, that people who've been infected with the virus seem to be um, really displaying? Well, basically, chronic fatigue syndrome is, and this cousin, fibromyalgia, uh, represents an energy crisis in the body where you trip a circuit breaker in the brain called the hypothalamus. It's a major control center that controls sleep, hormones, autonomic function. And what happens is that, it, that you can trip that circuit breaker with any number of stresses. Uh, I know back in 1975, I had post-viral chronic fatigue syndrome actually knocked me out of medical school and left me homeless because I was working and paying my own way through. Um, and that's why I've been interested in this area for 45 years. Um, so basically, it's an energy crisis. You trip a circuit breaker and you can't sleep. You're exhausted. You have brain fog uh, and likely ache all over. And now we've been hearing that some of the, the, the longer-term symptoms of people who've been infected with COVID-19 are they, is it chronic fatigue syndrome they're getting, or is it just something that sort of mimics or seems like it's chronic fatigue syndrome? What exactly is this long COVID that's causing people these you know, long-term effects? It's, it is the same thing. We see it with literally dozens of infections. This is just one more. It's not this something dramatically new. It's something we've known about for decades. And, uh, it's not only viral infections, numerous other infections can trigger post-infectious chronic fatigue syndrome. And the PASC that Dr. Fauci notes about, which is what most people uh, talk about the long COVID, is simply post-viral CFS. And that means we can apply all the research, including, for example, we have a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study we've had published showing that 90% of people with post-viral and other causes of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia um, can improve with a 90% increase in quality of life. This is very, very, very treatable, but there's not a single magic bullet. It takes a comprehensive protocol. And when we think about, you know, these long-term effects of COVID, you mentioned how people can get it from various viruses. So can you get it if you've had a, a bad case of the flu? Uh, the flu is less likely to trigger it. Things like Epstein-Barr virus, HSV-1, um, CMV, HHV-6, these are more common viral triggers. And now COVID is added to that list. So do you know what are the, is it just inevitable that people who have COVID will have this? Or what, what's kind of the criteria that's driving? Or is there, do we know a, a link of who will exhibit the symptoms of uh, long COVID? Historically, because I've successfully treated literally thousands of people over the years with post-viral chronic fatigue syndrome, what I find is a pattern. Uh, you know, the question is, why do 10% of people get it, but 90% of people with COVID don't get it? And what we found, Dean, is that people who are on the edge energetically, they have severe life stress, uh, their uh, marriage is in crumbling, they uh, have other illnesses going on, uh, they're working 70-hour weeks in very stressful jobs. These are the people who are kind of on the edge of tripping a circuit breaker anyway, and the virus is what pushes them over the cliff. Huh, that's interesting. This is Dean Finelli on Politics and Life Science Radio. I'm talking with Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. 
Uh, Dr. Teitelbaum, when you what when you someone gets this, you said it's about 10% of people. How will they know if if they actually have long COVID or if they're just still recovering? Is it is there something that distinguishes maybe someone who's taking a little longer to recover from the virus versus someone who actually may have recovered but is now exhibiting these long-term uh, effects? It's pretty straightforward. It's important first to distinguish long COVID from just a persistent cough or even having your know, heart uh, issues with palpitations and shortness of breath from uh, heart inflammation. Uh, these are different pieces of COVID. They're not what I consider long COVID. Um, so the shortness of breath, the cough, the taste, the smell, these are not things that would leave me worried about long COVID. Uh, these are things we can address with other ways. Um, that are pretty straightforward. With long COVID, if you have symptoms of fatigue and insomnia, that paradox can't sleep even though you're exhausted, any more than two months out from the onset, you've got it. Even a month out from the onset, good probability, but at two months, you have it. Um, brain fog, difficulty with word finding, word substitution, short-term memory, uh, which has been named brain fog, also a classic part that tells you that they have the problem. Um, and if you have widespread achiness, that symptom tells you that you have it. So if you have two or three of these symptoms lasting more than six to eight weeks after the viral onset, you've got the process. Now, is it the type of thing that it will just dissipate over time? You know, after about six months, it will just naturally get better? Or is it the type of thing that um, you need treatment for in order to, to remedy it? Uh, both. A good percent of people historically uh, looking at the other post-viral uh, chronic fatigue syndrome patterns, um, by about a year, you're going to see a very large percent will improve considerably. But there's still a, a significant persistent number that uh, if they still have the symptoms after one year and certainly after five years, after five years, spontaneous recovery is rare, but these people recover just fine with proper treatment. Um, so yes, those of you who may be having it, there's a good chance it's going to improve. Personally, I would not wait. Um, I would do the things needed to improve now to give your body a better chance at recovery. And I don't see a reason why I would want to be crippled for a year unnecessarily. This is a very treatable condition. Absolutely. So what are some of the treatments uh, that people, if they're at about a month out after getting the virus, if they're still, you know, feeling brain fog, feeling very fatigued two months out, what are some treatments that people can do? What do you recommend? What's critical is to remember the word SHINE, S-H-I-N-E. That's a protocol for optimizing energy. So S is for sleep. H is to optimize hormones. That's a circuit breaker that you tripped. Controls thyroid, adrenal, testosterone, reproductive hormones. Um, and the tests won't be abnormal. You have to be in the lowest 2% of the population. Um, we'll discuss what normal ranges mean in a moment if we have time. But optimize sleep hormones, address other infections. Nutritional support is critical. And just enough exercise to condition without feeling you're wiped out and laid into bed the next couple of days. And what are some, so as far as nutrition goes and going through some of those, are there medicines that or over-the-counter um, uh, medications that people could take? What would be the first thing you would say someone should do? You know, if obviously getting to a doctor is probably number one, but aside from that, you know, is there some personal treatment that people can do going to their CVS or their pharmacy? 
there's very simple things. You're not going to find them on far, at uh, the drugstore, but you'll find them online pretty readily, uh, even places like Amazon, uh, the, my website, nfatigue.com. So we find to optimize energy, I would begin with a good multivitamin, um, and most of them are not. Um, there's one called the Energy Revitalization System. Uh, that's a powder, one drink. There's another one called Clinical Essentials, which is also brilliant, at uh, two pills a day. I would start with that. Uh, we've published two studies showing that a simple nutrient called ribose, R-I-B-O-S-E, increases energy an average of 61%. So I would just do these two together. In fact, I would do the Energy Revitalization System and the smart energy and the smart energy system, which has the ribose and other things that will increase energy. A lot of people can as much as double energy just for those two. Hmm. There's been uh, obviously a lot of parents have been taking their kids recently to get vaccinated uh, with the Pfizer BioNTech mRNA vaccine that's been authorized for five to eleven year olds. Is is long COVID something that parents? Um, should be worried about if their children come across and come in contact with the virus? It seems a lot less. Um, I'm not as excited about immunizing all the children. I know there's a push for it. It's just that but when you look at the data, you're looking at about one in four million children who, unless they have leukemia or other severe illnesses, dying from the virus. And I think perspective is important. Um, so I, we do see cases post-vaccine also triggering uh, post-vaccine chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, it's not common. I've seen several, about three of the cases so far, uh, much more common with post-viral. Um, but with children, I don't see it so much uh, with the COVID. We've seen it more with other viruses. I've treated children as young as seven. Uh, but it's the, the short answer, Dean, is no. We're just not seeing that very commonly from the COVID in children. So because the, the risk of, of dying from COVID when it comes to children is, I think you mentioned one in four million, it's very, very unlikely, uh, is getting children vaccinated more to protect against the spread? Or do you think it's just, um, you know, I hate to say overreaction because, you know, whenever you say that, I think people use that as a, uh, a green light to start to, to say, I don't need to get the vaccine. But do you think people should or children should um, be more, or even parents be more strategic when it comes to the vaccine? Maybe, as you mentioned, children that are higher risk, or do you I, agree with I would. basically vaccinating I would. all children? I would. I, I don't agree with vaccinating all children, but I don't think it's, I think it's made out to be more on both sides. It's been highly politicized. And my politics is that I, I both sides, I'm going to ignore them. I'm sorry. It's just, it's been so politicized. I look at what the research shows and then I do a risk benefit assessment. So to protect the teachers in the school would be one thing, but the teachers should just be vaccinated. If there's an elderly at-risk person at home, a grandparent with diabetes, that's the reason to vaccinate the children. Um, there's no right or wrong in it, Dean. It's just, you know, in my looking at the risk-benefit assessment, the numbers just don't work out to make it that important. We It does not give herd immunity because the vaccine does not prevent you from getting the virus so much and spreading it. It just keeps you from dying from it, which is not minimal. I mean, the vaccine is a critical tool that we have. Um, I just... In my looking through risk benefit assessment, no, but uh, yeah, no, but that's it's just a very personal thing. Um, but I think again, you know, the post-viral chronic fatigue syndrome—that's a big area, and um, 
the people need to know now that it can be treated now. There is effective treatment because otherwise, you know probably better than most people, how long it takes for a treatment, you know, seven to ten years to develop a treatment and get it to the FDA process. And that's going to be a long time for people to wait unnecessarily. Absolutely right. We're hearing uh, from the FDA that they, you know, talking about vaccines and herd immunity, the, the FDA seems like it's pushing now to redefine what it means to be fully vaccinated. They may say you now need a booster. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think boosters are going to be necessary for the general public or is that more something in those high risk individuals? Well, for me, it's more for the high-risk individuals. My main concern with the boosters is that you're going to be triggering a heavy output of antibodies against something that doesn't that don't work. Because we're seeing, as the new strains come out, we're going to have more and more resistance to the spike protein antibody currently produced by the mRNA vaccines. And if you're tying up the immune system, making an antibody that doesn't work, that's not helpful. And my bigger concern is that the antibody will still recognize the virus and hover around the virus, but won't attack the virus. And in that case, it's, I don't know if you're familiar with the term competitive inhibitor that we see in medicine. It actually will get in the way of your own antibodies uh, getting to the virus. And I'm concerned that it may cause more harm than good. Uh, so again, I'm a proponent of updating the vaccine, giving the boosters for high-risk population. Um, but I don't think from a public health point of view or an individual point of view that we have enough data to support it for everybody. Um, I would rather let immunity wane a bit so we're not making a, a high output of antibodies that don't work for the new strains. Um, I think there'll still be enough protection to keep people from dying, which is the main thing. I'm less concerned about people getting the disease and dying or being hospitalized. So I think, to me, the jury is still out, but that's not my expertise thing. I'm just, I'm some guy in the street. I'm just one more doctor when it comes to that. So that's my perspective, but I don't know. Well, I appreciate that valuable perspective and your humility, uh, Definitely, you're one of the foremost experts when it comes to chronic fatigue syndrome, so I'm hoping people pay attention. Uh, I want to ask you to look in your crystal ball. I mentioned today is the first I've heard about this new strain that seems to be a little bit of concern, so much so that the WHO held a, an emergency meeting today. Uh, is this something, you know, if you look in your crystal ball, something people should worry about, or is this still at the kind of public health, global health official uh, just keeping an eye and keeping getting to understand what this is. Well, Dean, I think instead of the news media worthiness of getting everybody's attention, what I'd rather look at is the big picture. And if you take a look, they actually had a survey of epidemiologists around the world, and this was maybe six months ago about what their guess was in terms of how long it would take for a strain to become immune to the viruses and have the breakthrough coming through that way. And the the peak of the curve is right about the six-month thing. Whether it's the Omicron strain or whether it's other strains, um, I suspect we very, very likely will have a strain resistant to the current vaccines. And that's why I think we need to plan accordingly. I think the push needs to be for the newer vaccines that are being developed that hit multiple targets, which make immunity or resistance much harder further mutations to achieve. I think we need to presume 
you know, the worst that that is going to happen. Create the new vaccines for that. Uh, and let the immunity go down a bit with the others. Use other tools. Uh, nutritional support is critical for optimizing immunity. Uh, Dr. Fauci himself does. He takes vitamin D um, f- to protect against the worst effects of the COVID. But we don't talk about that. There's no m- money in it. Uh, the news media gets no advertising from people who make vitamin D. And therefore, they don't talk about it. They're good people. God bless them. But we need to look at other things and not just what's most profitable here. And that's where I think we'll get the best protection for the buck. Dr. Teitelbaum, thank you so much for your time today. I couldn't agree more with those statements. I think I was hoping when we look back at this, we'd use it as an opportunity to reassess public health and be a little more uh, focused, a little more on preventative action than therapies. But it just seems like, you know, you may have hit it on the head with the drug industries pushing uh, for vaccines and now therapeutics. Um, a lot of these prophylactic rem- remedies, such as vitamin D that you mentioned, uh, tend to be overlooked. I'd love to get you back on the show at some point. Maybe we can talk about some additional remedies and you can fill us in on uh, additional information on long COVID. But I want to thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. This is Dean Finale. That was Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum on Politics and Life Science. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Uh, check out our, our today's show. Great information on long COVID, great information on what you can do to prevent long COVID, what you can do to, in addition to getting vaccinated to help yourself if you are infected or if you're one of those people that have not been vaccinated, what you can do to at least boost your immune system, boost your hormones, And remember Dr. Teitelbaum's acronym SHINE uh, to help prevent these long COVID symptoms. Thank you so much, Dr. Teitelbaum, and thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences. 